All right, so what should we talk about today? I've got this album of Balinese gamelan music that's really... Meat! I guess that's a no. Okay, how about Dope Smoker by Sleep? It's a single hour-long song that's all about... Meat! Meat. Okay, uh, how about Forbidden Places by the Meat Puppets? It was their major label debut, and it was supposed to make them famous, but it never did. Meat? Is that... Is that okay? Meat! All right, then. This is Discord and... Meat! Welcome to Discord and Rhyme, a podcast where we discuss our favorite albums, song by song. You can find us on Twitter at twitter.com slash discordpod, and you can find our episode archive and complete show nights online at discordpod.com. I'm Phil Maddox, and I'm here with... Rich Bennell, Dan Watkins, and Chris Willie-Williams. If you like what you hear and you feel like throwing some change in the tip jar, you can visit our Patreon at patreon.com slash discordpod. Our $5 tier includes early access to a new series of mini-sos that we are already recording. They are going to be the best. Yeah, they're, you're going to be bowled over by these. Anyway, our host this week is Chris Willie Williams. What album are you taking us through today, Will? I've got the Meat Puppets 1991 album, Forbidden Places. Ah, an excellent choice. <laughs> I thought you might like it since you signed up for it. <laughs> yeah, and because I have like every Meat Puppets album, it's it's a mystery. <laughs> anyway, why have you selected this album, Will? Well, I'll tell you, Phil. The Meat Puppets are a band that don't get discussed anywhere close to as much as they should, considering the influence they've had on modern American rock. Oh, hard agree. Yeah. Michael, <laughs> Michael Azarad's otherwise terrific book about the American punk and indie underground of the 1980s called Our Band Could Be Your Life. Only. Oh, yeah, I. Great book. It's it's terrific, but it only mentions the meat puppets in passing a handful of times. Yeah. Even though there's like there's an entire chapter on like beat happening, who I like, but are yeah, not. You know, I, I, side note: I just listened. I just got into beat happening, and I want to do an episode on them eventually. They're really interesting, but they're, they're very interesting bands. They're fine. Yeah, I, I nothing against beat happening, but as far as influence goes, apart from Kurt Cobain's K Records tattoo, it not perhaps as important as the Meat Puppets. And even their one semi-mainstream hit, uh, 1994's Backwater, seems to have been completely forgotten. Like, I, I can't recall the last time I've heard that song in public, even though I still hear Blind Melon's No Rain at least once every couple months. And when I wake up in the morning To feel the day break on my face there's a blood that's flowing through the feeling With a knife to open up the sky's veins Some things will never change They stand there looking backwards Have unconscious from the pain They may seem rearranged In the backwater swirling There is something that'll never change I'm 
pretty sure I've literally never heard Backwater anywhere except for my copy of Too High to Die. Yeah, I don't... It, it's fallen out of the public conscious. It made it to number 47, I believe, on the, the Billboard charts, but you you never hear it. And then this this album in particular really doesn't get discussed anywhere as much as it should. It just completely splatted to the pavement and flopped upon its release. Um, it, it got some good reviews, including an A-plus in Entertainment Weekly. But two months later, Nirvana's Nevermind was released, and that just obscured it completely, in addition to just instantly making the entire music industry establishment seem about as vibrant and appealing as a broken old Venstar candy machine sitting in the corner of an auto repair shop, just <laughs> full of dusty old Reese's Pieces and bands like Tesla. So we're going to single-handedly correct this oversight on this episode. I am very much in favor of correcting this oversight because, you know, spoiler alert, this is a really great album that I like a lot. But before we get into uh, the nitty gritty of this album, uh, we're going to talk about our personal histories with it a little bit. Uh, what's your history with the Meat Puppets and this album, uh, Will? My, my impression is that most people who are aware of the Meat Puppets discovered them when Kurt Cobain, <laughs> who's going to get mentioned a lot, I think, on this episode, invited Meat Puppets brothers Kurt and Chris Kirkwood to play three songs from the album Meat Puppets 2 during Nirvana's Unplugged session. However, I was the nerd in middle school who became aware of them because of their brief symbiotic relationship with They Might Be Giants. Right on. Yeah, the two bands briefly shared a manager, Jamie Kitman. So Kirk Kirkwood designed uh, They Might Be Giants concert t-shirt, They Might Be Giants, which I just learned this week, contributed backing vocals to the Meat Puppets cover of Marty Robbins' White Sport Coat. Um, they Might Be Giants covered the song Whirlpool from this album, which we'll get to. And at that stage of my life, the Meat Puppets 1994 album, Too High to Die, had testimonials from Kurt Cobain and Dave Perner appearing on them. I would not have cared a whit about that, but knowing that They Might Be Giants had the Meat Puppets respect and vice versa meant the Meat Puppets had my respect. So I, I picked up this album, loved it, and wound up following their uniquely uneven but hugely rewarding travels from there. Man, this is just making me think of a time in which, like, an endorsement from Dave Perner from Soul Asylum meant something. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so what's what's your uh, history with the Meat Puppets, Rich? So in college, uh, Will and I were snail mail file sharers uh, and traded CDRs, all of which I still have. And I can still picture his all caps Sharpie handwriting in my mind's eye. <laughs> it warms my heart just to think about yeah. it. <laughs> Among these albums were Meat Puppets 2 and Up on the Sun, both of which are, are classics of theirs from the 80s, and I enjoyed both of them, but uh, I would say that their more musically revolutionary elements were kind of lost on me at the time uh, as a stupid college student. And I liked them, but they were also very short albums and very messy albums, which I misinterpreted as slight. Now, in 2018, then Will went and picked a Puppets album I'd never even heard of for his first episode, and for me, it was the second chance the band needed this whole time. So, thanks, Will. Anytime. I always thank everybody for their albums. I'm always just so grateful that you're it's, telling yeah. me about these wonderful albums. I'm, I'm glad that I get credit for the Meat Puppets hard work. So how about you, Dan? What's your history with the Meat Puppets? 
Uh, well, I definitely had the Nirvana Unplugged story as my introduction, but it wasn't really enough to get me curious enough to check out any of the actual albums. It wasn't until a few years later in high school when I became aware of SST Records through Zoog's Rift, of all people, which led me down you know, the road of kind of checking out some huh. of those artists. And Was he on SST? He was. He was an yeah. outlier for sure, but he was on SST. I did not know that. And, um, but you get a little catalog of all the SST artists and records and stuff that were available, which kind of led me to the Meat Puppets. So I bought the Meat Puppets 2 and Double Nickels and a Dime by the Minutemen, which were two of my gateways to punk and indie. And <laughs> you were into Zoog's Rift before the Meat Puppets. I had a weird them. teenage uh, experience. Oh, that's, that's awesome. <laughs> that's great. <laughs> So much like Mike DeFabio, I came in bass backwards to <laughs> punk and indie. But uh, but yeah, I moved on from Me Puppets 2 to Up on the Sun, which I also loved. Those two records were just like favorites of the 80s for me. Oh, they're great. But the other ones I kind of picked up here and there didn't really grab me, like Mirage and uh, Monsters. Mm-hmm. So I kind of just, they're fine, but didn't really didn't really stick with me. So I really just kind of didn't hear anything after 1990 or so. So this is my first time hearing Forbidden Places, and I'm glad I finally got around to it because I've foolishly passed on apparently <laughs> some really good 90s albums. As for me, like, like I'd say, I don't know, 95% of people who are familiar with the Meat Puppets, my introduction to them was, in fact, Nirvana's Unplugged in New York. But I kind of forgot about them. But then, like... When I was in college, I just kind of started reading around online. I found a, a site I'd been to many times, markprindle.com, where he had detailed reviews of the Meat Puppets albums, and he made them sound really interesting. So I went down to, uh, I was in Williamsburg, Virginia in college at the time, went to uh, Echoes Music, rest in peace, and picked up uh, Meat Puppets 2, which I thought was an incredibly great album. But for some reason, I never really listened to more of their stuff. Uh, many years later, I got Up on the Sun, which is also really good. And then again, a few years passed, and I never really um, listened to them more until I eventually, just for whatever reason, I got to thinking about them more and decided I'm going to try to find all their albums at like used CD stores. And I bought almost all of their albums, except the album of theirs I got last was uh, One Forbidden Places, <laughs> which uh, it always was an album I was interested in. I don't know why I never listened to it on the internet, but I believe... Um, on an old, you know, web reviewing community website run by one Chris Willie Williams, I believe this album got an A plus. Yeah, he was he was pretty uh, free with those. <laughs> but I remember thinking about that A plus on that <laughs> website and like wondering about the album. So I finally found a copy of it because by the time I was looking for it, like copies online were kind of expensive. So I found a copy cheap at like. Uh, as local record shop, and I listened to it, and I just immediately went like, "This is an incredibly good album," and I don't know like why, why this is not more famous because it's a candidate for my favorite Meat Puppets album, and it's just totally unknown. So I'm looking forward to talking about it quite a bit, like because it's it's a very interesting, good album that I think not nearly enough people have heard of. I agree. I'm glad. I'm glad that. I was able to play a part in in that. Yeah, I just, uh, since you mentioned that, I just looked it up on Amazon, and the cheapest copy of this album is $19. Really? Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, yeah. It's worth noting that this album is out of print. We're covering an out of print album, but you yeah, can sorry. still find it on YouTube. Yeah, I, fi- I, I we have faith in like you know our listeners that they can figure out how to listen to this album, even though it's out of print. Yeah, I mean, we we're not actually going to say wink every uh, <laughs> every time we cover an out of print album, but uh, those who want to find it can probably find it so one way or another. If you live in or around Columbia, Maryland, like there's a used CD store around here that had a copy for $4 <laughs> as of two days ago. So, you know, get down there and pick it up. You're, you're just going to cause traffic jams. Or you could just log on to Audio Galaxy. That still exists, right? right. <laughs> I don't know. I'll, I'll have to look on Alta Vista and check. All right. So, Will, why don't you give us a brief history of the Meat Puppets? Okay. There's a shutter in the the Meat Puppets started out as a Phoenix-based hardcore band that was formed by guitarist slash singer Kurt Kirkwood, his brother Chris on bass, and drummer Derek Bostrom. On the strength of their debut EP, the five-minute-long and five-minute-too-long In A Car, they got signed to SST Records, the legendary punk label which was founded by Black Flag guitarist Greg Ginn. Their self-titled debut was more so-so hardcore, but then the Meat Puppets made a name for themselves with what would become the first in a career of very weird choices, the 1984 follow-up Meat Puppets 2, which mostly abandoned their music's hardcore elements, instead revealing a penchant and talent for wistful, snarky songs that are influenced as much by country and psychedelic rock as the punk movement. It came completely out of nowhere, and it still sounds like no one else. And along with uh, Double Nickels on the Dime by the Minutemen, which Dan mentioned, and Husker Du's Zen Arcade, two is uh, frequently pointed to as one of the highlights of mid-'80s indie rock, as well as one of the unquestionable high points of SST's catalog. And uh, it it bears a brief digression here, uh, since we don't we don't often talk about labels, uh, record labels on this this podcast but dan uh you wanted to mention a little bit about sst well i just know that like for me it was kind of my introduction to the idea of like a record label as not just being a company with a bunch of random artists that it was like an actual curated roster of kind of bands with a similar aesthetic which uh i guess it's kind of become a pretty common thing nowadays but it was certainly something that was new to me when I was a teenager and kind of discovered SST and kind of saw all these bands like Dinosaur Jr. and Husker Du that were sort of like, oh, these are all one label who yeah. were by that point had kind of gone on to other, you know, the majors. But it was kind of neat to see that sort of, I guess, the the genesis of that kind of scene all in one kind of one label. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm not aware. I, I mean, I'm, I could easily be proven wrong, I'm sure, but I'm not aware of any other labels that predated SST that had that sort of um, attitude that was sort of baked in to the like. N- nowadays, we have like you know what a merge records band is more or less. Maybe like sound Stiff like. would have predated it, but yeah, that's when was Discord. Oh, that was maybe a little later. Yeah, that's right now. Phil, we're recording it. <laughs> Try to thanks, Rich. Keep up here, Phil. 
<laughs> but no, you're, yeah, you're right. Discord was uh, around around the same time, I think. But... Any alternative tentacles a little after. Yeah. Uh, SST as well. Mm-hmm. But, but I think SST was really kind of ahead of the, like that LA punk scene. Mm-hmm. I mean, SST had a lot more big name, like in retrospect, big name bands than like alternative tentacles. SST yeah. had like, oh, yeah. Soundgarden before Soundgarden were big and, you know, all kinds of stuff. Yeah, Sonic Youth. Uh, but yeah, SST definitely a, a, a label whose whose influence I think can't be overstated. And Meat Puppets Two was was probably a, at the very least among the top of the pile from its in, entire catalog. Yeah, definitely one of my favorite SST albums. Oh yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so there was that, and then um, after Meat Puppets Two, which is this this classic album, the rest of the eighties. Found the Meat Puppets touring and recording at a, a really steady, unceasing clip, releasing albums that ranged from the, the beautifully noodly Up on the Sun to the abominable ZZ Top homage Huevos. <laughs> I love the album title Huevos because they named it that because uh, they recorded the album really quickly. And like uh, their rationale for that is because like, you know, once you use eggs, they're gone. And that seems really like poetic when you first hear it. But then you realize that it applies to literally every ingredient in every dish ever. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's sort of fitting for for the meat puppets. <laughs> now that you mentioned it. things that sort of sound poetic, but uh, upon further scrutiny... <laughs> Those are loafers. Anyway, in 1990, the Meat Puppets left SST for the major label London Records. And anyone who knows anything about other artists who've departed SST can probably guess whether the split was amicable or acrimonious. (laughs) Forbidden Places is their major label debut, and it's among the most impressive examples I can think of of a band making the jump from an indie to a major and really using the increased resources available to them in a creatively successful way. Getting to to this album specifically, uh, the Meat Puppets were used to producing themselves, but for this album, London gave them a list of potential producers to work with and basically told them, pick one. And they chose Pete Anderson. Uh, Pete Anderson had a little heat behind him at that point as Dwight Yoakam's bandmate and producer. And the Meat Puppets had made his acquaintance when Yoakam opened for them some years earlier. Oh, the dude from Sling Blade. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> both Crank and Crank 2. Panic Room. <laughs> and Panic Room, yeah. And uh, Logan Lucky from last year, which oh. I highly recommend. I want to see that. Yeah, Dwight Yoakam, I've, I've never enjoyed his music, but he's a really interesting actor. But getting away from Dwight Yoakam, we always digress and talk about (laughs) Dwight Yoakam on this show, I know. But Forbidden Places was recorded at the famous Capitol Records building in L.A., and the band gamely gave themselves over to the process of being extravagantly produced. Um, One of the best stories is that at one point, Pete Anderson decided that one of the songs needed an egg shaker, one of those little black eggs full of sand that are always sitting in a plastic tub next to the register at your local guitar shop. It's like the take a penny, leave a penny tray for your guitar center. <laughs> Derek Bostrom, the uh, the drummer, had already left for the day. And rather than just entrusting any old session percussionist with the task of going like this... 
Pete Anderson called in Alex Acuna of highly regarded 70s jazz fusion legends The Weather Report to go. (laughs) 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 It's ridiculous. The result is an album that retains the Meat Puppets characteristic humor and genre play while also allowing Kurt Kirkwood songs to realize their full potential via some newly tight and brisk playing. All right. That takes us up to 1991 with Forbidden Places. So I guess unless anybody has anything else to say, we'll uh, start with the first track off this album entitled Sam, who is not with his uh, normal partner, Max, here. (laughs) Max must have hit the road. (laughs) Ah. Sam, I've always been weirdly impressed by songs whose uh, vocalists go really fast. Like, It's the End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M. And and I Want You by Savage Garden, I assume. I Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. That went without saying. Also, Alphabet Aerobics by Blackalicious, Brand New Day from Dr. Horrible. And I admit that when I was nine years old, I spent an afternoon memorizing We Didn't Start the Fire. Hook by Blues Traveler. <laughs> I don't know. It's a good genre. <laughs> it's 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 fun, and I guess I, I mean, given that Billy Joel and Blues Traveler are among its adherents, it's an easy way to hide <laughs> poor songwriting. <laughs> However, ouch! Ooh, diss. Out of nowhere. I mean, well, what's great about Sam is that the the vocalizing and the guitar playing are a shot across the bow to any other early 90s alt-rock band that actually doesn't know what it's doing and tries to use these tricks to conceal it because it's really a well-written song from top to bottom in addition to being this technical vocal marvel. The first, like, 10 seconds of that were just them playing. It's, like, so impressive sounding. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of Blue-era King Crimson, which is not a problem for me. <laughs> And that's not the first prog reference that we're going to cram into this episode. Sorry, Will. I, I, every time you say King Crimson, I'm just going to imagine King Missile. It's, it's, it's same thing. Indistinguishable. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's just, it, it really is. There, it, it's a highlight or a, a, a showcase, I guess I should say, for for Kurt's really fast ability to play the guitar. Um, as well as being able to to sing as fast as he does. And it's it's almost a shame that the words zip by as fast as they do, because if you sit down with the lyric sheet, there are a bunch of really brilliant, smart-ass lines hidden in there. My favorite is, slipping the rich through the eye of a needle is easy as getting a camel to heaven. Yeah, that's great. I, it's just so smart. So yeah, I love I love that one. I think it's a great opener. 
I mean, I think it's, you know, it's definitely a great opener. Like, it kind of halfway verges on being a novelty song just because of, like, you know, clearly the gimmick of it is, like, the super fast vocals that keep getting spit out. But it's more than that. Like, like I mentioned, the early, like, you know, first few seconds of it when the band is just really playing is really unique and distinctive. And, like, the Meat Puppets, like, you know, they're from Arizona, and they always have this kind of weird evocative way that always kind of like gives me like images of like the desert that like kind of come across in their music and i think it comes across here not as well as some of the other songs on this album but it's like it kind of gives it kind of a weird like halfway lonely feeling and it's a really interesting sound then you know their super fast vocals come in and it's just incredibly entertaining this should have been a hit it's a like there's a music video for it which is you know not much of a music video but right it's kind of an off-putting music video because it looks like an early 90s like alt rock sort of thing and then like uh kurt when he's looking at the camera like singing the vocals he has like the super stern look on his face and he's in the shadows but he's like spitting out these like ridiculous lyrics super fast and then it cuts over to to chris and he's like kind of just like staring like vacantly like saying the vocals as well like right it's a weird video like it did it, it, it wasn't a hit like i'd never heard this the only time i've ever heard this song outside of the context of this album was literally about a month ago when i went to a comic book convention and some dude was just blasting it out of his booth what <laughs> yeah and did you say are you playing sam i am uh, alas i did not and we're all the better for it yeah just Definitely a great song and a very strong opener. Uh, what do you think of this one, Dan? Yeah, great opener. Um, I really just love how the guitar and bass just lock in together with that like super complicated rambling melody at the beginning. It reminds me of some of my favorite bits on Up on the Sun, where those just really kind of lightning fast, just a million notes a second mm. runs. But yeah, it's a great song. So with this album's proximity to Nevermind and the whole Nirvana connection in general, it's honestly, it's tough for me not to see this as the band's own stab at a Smells Like Teen Spirit level hit. Like, imagine if this song were Smells Like Teen Spirit. Um, it's certainly just as nonsensical. Like, you know, you got the mosquito, my libido, like, I, which I didn't realize were the lyrics to that song until relatively recently, actually. Um, but I guess Micro Machine's speed vocals were not really in vogue on the charts in 1991. Instead, they had their day in 93 with the release of Two Princes by the Spin Doctors, which is now in your head. Uh, yeah, that's thanks for, for drawing, drawing the line between those two songs that I'm never going to be able to erase. So I actually do have that first spin doctors album here's a mini discord and rhyme on it it's not very good no first concert i was i ever went to was it was cracker wow. cracker gin blossoms and spin doctors i like two of those bands yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> and the the lyrics uh I, I don't know if this is something that only happens to me but are any of you ever in a like a half awake state in the early morning and like your brain just starts to form sentences that make no sense. Oh, yeah. Uh, I know exactly yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah, like uh, like they're just flowing out of your head. Mm -hmm. Well, that's what these lyrics feel like to me, like kind of hypnagogic in a way. Yeah, just good work. Just a total stream of consciousness, like, you know, craziness here. Like, if you're looking for concrete meaning, you're probably not going to get it. If you're looking for concrete meaning, I would suggest not listening to the Meat Puppets in general. But, I mean, they they, they fit the meter really well. I oh, mean, yeah. They spit them out perfectly. Oh, oh yeah. For this for this song in particular, I, th I think it's, it's particularly impressive that Kurt was able to pull out as many really interesting phrases that are even halfway meaningful and, and sort of symbolic feeling as they were, considering 
they were clearly sort of subservient to the the way he had to spit them out as fast as he could in a, in a manageable manner. Just like a chicka cherry cola. Precisely. <laughs> I'm thinking about like any of our anime fans listening, thinking about like the end credits to that season of JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which I swear is the end of my anime references for this episode. And we're running out of references here. Yeah. The, <laughs> it's going to be nothing but like perfect strangers and Bobby's <laughs> world at the, at the very end. <laughs> that's what, that's what we're going to have available. <laughs> I'm trying to come up with a perfect Balky reference, but I can't think of any. So instead, I'll just move us along to the next track on this record, Nail It Down. Balky reference free. Good, good way to make sure I don't cut the Balky reference, Phil. You turn it into the segue. <laughs> I want to emphasize, I love this song. I think it's a 100% solid oak rock song, but it is so unexpected to me. And whenever you hear about a record label, particularly a major label mentioned in rock criticism, they're almost always painted as the villains. Oftentimes it's with good reason because they're just, they're bottom line oriented, sort of pushing aside any sort of creativity. Sometimes it's because they understandably didn't want to release Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. And although I don't get why you would sign a band you had no idea how to handle, this song makes me a little bit sympathetic toward how much trouble London Records had figuring out what to do with the Meat Puppets. Because as we heard uh, to open, Sam was this great but undeniably gimmicky borderline sort of asinine song that was the first single and chris chris said that if it had been a hit the the label was sort of mulling over marketing them as a dead milkman style joke rock band (laughs) (laughs) but then immediately after sam you got nail it down which is not just straightforward but completely straight faced it's as mature and sturdy as anything you'd hear from like bruce springsteen or warren zevon it's catchy as hell it's more self-assured than anything that kurt had ever written to this point and as a result i think it would be completely unmarketable to early 90s college radio the meat puppets have never taken themselves too seriously but here maybe for the first time they took themselves seriously enough that it was just completely out of step with the pervasive irony of the era even before Nevermind. it's an amazing song but i it's it comes out of nowhere for me in in a great way. Yeah. It it sounds like, you know, a very conscious attempt at like a mainstreaming of their sound and kind of trying to get a hit. Not to rain on people here. I'm actually not a big fan of this song. It's fine. Like, I like it. I like every song on this record, but I think it kind of loses too much of the Meat Puppets identity. 
it's decent. I mean, I enjoy it. I would never skip it because I like everything on this record. But it's a little bit too straight. Like, I get that. If I'm going to put on a Meat Puppets album, I usually want something a little bit more crooked. This is a good song and I like it. But if I'm trying to scratch the itch of, I feel like listening to the Meat Puppets today, this just doesn't quite do it for me. It sounds, it's a good song, but it doesn't quite, it doesn't hit me. Yeah, this this one doesn't really have the Meat Puppets identity, but for me, it kind of has a Tom Petty thing going on, especially the Jeff Lynne albums like Full Moon Fever. Uh, in fact, it, it particularly brings to mind the song Love is a Long Road, which I have a clip of right here. Um, I'm throwing it in just because I love that song. Yeah, we were desperate then, to have each other favorite song is from full moon favor a great album track but uh it's it, yeah it reminds me of that and uh and the keyboard line on the song is super super ben montenchi too which only hammers the whole comparison home i'm honestly surprised this wasn't the single like it has that vibe like they were going for their big crossover hit i think it was sort of prepped as a, a single i don't know why the the i don't know if they like called an audible at the last second and, and went with sam for some reason but yeah, it, it definitely feels like a big radio hit, but more of more of like an adult, not not adult contemporary, but an adult rock station single than a, a college rock. No, I can see what they were going for here because it, it's funny and kind of sad at the same time because, uh, well, uh, as we all know, as classic rock buffs, uh, classic rock was in a very bad way in the late 80s from like, you know, the Stones <laughs> is dirty work, Dylan's Empire Burlesque, uh, you know, any number of just uh, everything Clapton was doing. Uh, and the only real ray of hope <laughs> was the Jeff Lynne produced stuff like, you know, the Traveling Wilburys. Full Moon Fever and so on. And it must have seemed like the logical move for London Records and the Puppets at the time as a rock band. And then suddenly a band influenced by the Puppets' earlier albums comes along and changes the face of music. Yeah, it's there's a lot of weird coincidences with Nirvana along the way. Yeah. But sorry, what about you, uh, Dan? I, I'm kind of along with Phil on this one. This one didn't really grab me right away. And to me, it's kind of a weird track, too. It's kind of a, it kind of threw me on the first listen. But I, I've warmed up to it a lot since the first listen. But it's still not one of my favorites, particularly. And I'm kind of shocked I'd never picked up on the Tom Petty similarity before, because it's totally there. Oh, yeah, I never thought of that either. But yeah, Rich is dead on. And I do like how there are moments in the album where uh, Kurt's voice kind of breaks into this like throaty southern rock kind of <laughs> growl just kind of funny it sounds like he's headed down the road flirting with disaster a bit but uh <laughs> but, but yeah beat but, but this, it's okay but it's just not yeah it's not a, a highlight for me necessarily all right let's move on to the next track which is this day
I love this song. This is a beautiful song that would have been unthinkable even one album earlier in the Meat Puppets career because it relies so heavily upon Kurt being able to nail this melody. You might even say, nailing it down. And the fact that you do things like that constantly is why we do not invite you to participate in this podcast. Now, although the Meat Puppets had never lacked for technical skill musically, the vocals on their SST releases were always at least a touch misshapen. They're rickety. They're rickety <laughs> at best. Oh, you should hear him play live from that era. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. That's that is bad. <laughs> but even even the studio like here's just just for a taste. Here's a little clip from the 1985 song "Away" from the album "Up on the Sun." Michael Stipe-ish. <laughs> yeah, just as on on the mark as Michael. <laughs> <laughs> but, so that that's how Kurt sounded throughout the the SST uh, series of albums. But on Forbidden Places, it's like somebody clicked his snap to grid button because suddenly his singing is unimpeachable, or at least that's how it sounds. Nowadays, of course, producers can almost instantly pretty up questionable singing in Pro Tools. But back in 1991, it required a ridiculously laborious process. Pete Anderson made Kurt record dozens of vocal tracks into a sampler. From what I gather, sometimes it was a full take, sometimes it was just punching in a line or two. And these takes would first have to be pieced together to make sure every syllable was on the beat. And then once he had assembled a single rhythmically correct take, he'd use the sampler's pitch bending wheel to shift each note of his vocals until they were actually hitting the composed melody. Wow. It's auto-tune. Yeah. <laughs> Derek and Chris have said that Kurt found this process frustrating at best and humiliating at worst, but Kurt... Uh, I can't imagine why. Yeah. Great. <laughs> In retrospect, Kurt himself claims that he found it interesting if tedious. Which seems kind of polite. <laughs> I, I, I was not aware of that, but that's kind of amazing. Yeah, it, yeah that's it. When I read that, apparently Kurt uh, took the trouble to take singing lessons after this this album was recorded because he found the whole thing so uncomfortable. Yeah, the, the vocals are like kind of notably a little bit different by the next album. I'd say so. Yeah, yeah. He's. I think. Too High to Die is the first time he, he sounds fully confident as a, a vocalist. But I think that, at any rate, whatever, however many man hours of effort went into this, to making him sound listenable on Forbidden Places, the process worked. And that's why we've got tracks as pristine and gorgeous as this one. So the late 80s weren't just bad for classic rock, but for pop music production in general with like lots and lots and lots of reverb on everything. But it was really great for jangly pop music like this, uh, you know, where every note gets to ring out and like fill the mix like this big fluffy pillow. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, in particular, this sort of sounds like the riff from XTC's Mayor of Simpleton, like taken in a whole different direction. And 
Any friend of Mayor of Simpleton is a friend of mine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I got an XTC reference into this one. Oh, I Deal know. With it. For me, this one's like, it's a real nice song. Like, I like it better than Nail It Down. It has a little bit more of that, you know, kind of distinct Meat Puppets identity. It's still not one of my favorite songs on the album, but I think it's a very nice song. This is the kind of song I think you could slot on almost any album, and I would enjoy it, because it's just a very nicely composed, like, you know... The melody is very nicely composed. The arrangement's really good. Very solidly professional, which is not mm-hmm. really what you would expect from the Meat Puppets at this point, where professional is not one of the top 20 adjectives I would have used to describe their early works. I like this one a lot. This is one of my favorites. Uh, I really like how you kind of have that kind of breezy verse, and then it goes into the odd rhythm on the, the chorus. Is that like, is that, is that in seven with the bass is playing? I was trying to figure it out too. I can't. I can't put my finger on it. But it's a, it's a really kind of neat little like left turn it makes on the the chorus. Uh, but yeah, I like this one a lot. This is a highlight for sure. That's it. Let's move on to our next track, "Open Wide." <laughs> I've never set foot on a skateboard without keeping at least two other limbs braced against something else. But this is what I imagine skater thrash to sound like. Yes. Is that more or less the case? I don't know. Are uh, you Dan? all, I feel like all as unathletic <laughs> as I am? I feel like this might be a little bit too kind of self-consciously nerdy like sounding for a lot of like. I hear like monster truck rally TV commercial. <laughs> At any rate, I tend not to think of Skater Kids as being quite so into absinthe as the song's lyrics would suggest, because yeah. Kurt focuses a lot on little pink salamanders and fat ripe rats holding stacks of juniper pie aloft. Because like when I was in high school, all the skaters like listened to like corn. <laughs> yeah, good stuff. Yeah, it's it's definitely the the hardest of the the songs on this album, but. Even so, even given the band's hardcore roots, the, it's got a really solid melodic hook to it, which I think sets it apart from most of their their SST past label mates. It's I, I really, really like this one. Oh, yeah, this one's just got, like, this is one of my favorite songs on the album. Like, I like the last two songs on it. I think they're pretty good. But, like, this is where, like, I really get back into the album hard because, like, I love the riff. I love kind of the driving rhythm. I love uh, Kurt's vocals, like the weird lyrics, like just kind of pounding forward. It's kind of like, I don't know how to describe that riff, but it's kind of, again, I mentioned earlier, like kind of deserty, like, but it's totally unique. Like this doesn't sound like anybody else entirely. Like there's things that it's close to, but this is like distinctly the meat puppets doing their thing. But like, kind of in a more professional manner than in their last couple albums. And here, I think it just really, really works. I hear Ween in this. (laughs) 
Which means Ween stole this, I guess. But the, right down to like the wah-wah guitar, like it just sounds so Stroker Ace to me. Well, Kurt appeared on the Dean Ween group uh, solo, uh, Dean Ween solo album, uh, for the Dean Ween group, he played guitar on the album or uh, the song uh, "Exercise Man." Hmm. <laughs> so yeah, there's... I love the, the 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 weird lyrics in this one. Just really odd imagery. It's great. It's about the twenty one salamanders and their tongues, <laughs> and like, oh, I, I love this one. Uh, yeah, I think uh, I think it is important that you, as listeners, understand what Kurt is singing here. Uh, twenty one little pink salamanders passed me by tonight. 21 little red tongues are flickering in my sight. Amphibious thoughts are flowing with the salamander showing of the, quote, touch of evil tinted black and white. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, the, I love which these is, weird-ass lyrics. It's, it's one of the only real, like, pop culture references to appear yeah. in, in the Meat Puppets canon. And it's a reference... I think around that time is when there was some debate over the colorization of old movies. And... So I like that he specifies that it's the the black and white original version of Touch of Evil. Yes. <laughs> not the weirdly colorized new version. Kurt's so smart. Well, this sounds like Motorhead to me, especially when the drums speed up. And given yeah. Ween's plainly stated Motorhead fandom, we're probably hearing the same thing here, Dan. Yeah, I'm just used to hearing Motorhead filtered through Ween, I think. <laughs> it's a good way to hear them. I'll say is that I think the production doesn't really do the louder songs on this album any favors, but the song is really, really fun. Like, I kind of like kind of the weird production here because, like, I kind of hear where you're coming from with Motorhead, though Motorhead are usually a lot kind of filthier sounding than this. But, like, this kind of, like, riff applied to this kind of, like, light touch production, like, and the melody here, I think it creates kind of a unique atmosphere. I think it actually clicks. Well, I think the choice of, like, a predominantly country music producer is really interesting for mm-hmm. how diverse this album is. Yeah. Like, I think that really adds something. It's really, it, it's one of the things that adds to this album's uniqueness, which is one of the things that kind of draws me to it. I agree. I, ha- I haven't heard a, a ton of Pete Anderson's not, well, I haven't heard much at all of Pete Anderson's non-Meat Puppets work, but <laughs> it, it was a very interesting choice. And I think he acquits himself really well with, with songs like this and, and Pop Skull, which we'll get to in a bit. On that note, let's uh, move forward to the next track on here. Track five, Another Moon.
This one, to me, it's not a standout, and I don't think it tries to be a standout on Forbidden Places, but I think it's a terrific example of how even the songs on this album that aren't the support beams or the, the load-bearing walls are pretty terrific if you pay attention to them. I don't, I don't think there's any... There's no song on this album that I feel less than love for. But there's no, to me, there's no real weight to this one. It's just sort of an enjoyably genial way to bring the listener back to the surface after the darkness of open wide. And it's still terrific. It's just not one of the, the highlights among the highlights. Yeah, this is actually one of my favorites on the record. Like, I have, you know, it's... Uh... It's hard to describe, but I just love that kind of like riff with like the little like chunka drums going with it. Like it's got like a real drive to it. I just love how this one sounds. This is actually like one of my favorites on the album. I think it's got just a really interesting sound to it. I have no idea what the words are. I've never really paid that much <laughs> attention to them. But I mean, if you're paying, if you're listening to the Meat Puppets for the lyrics, I don't know what to tell you. Yeah, I was going to say the lyrics seem kind of serious, sad and self-reflective. And then suddenly at the end, there's a verse about a spilled jar of honey and sticky monkeys. Yeah, the sticky monkeys <laughs> lyrics, which I, I literally only just noticed that lyric, like in the last few days while getting ready to listen to this, to record this episode, which I've listened to this album a million times. So it's just like. I never, you know, noticed that lyric even just because I'm so into the sound that the lyrics just kind of, you know, fade into the background on this one. But yeah, I definitely like this one. Yeah, this is the song that most jibes with the traditional Meat Puppet sound of yore, I'd say. It feels kind of like something off of Mirage, but, you know, with that good old major label discipline that y'all were talking about during this day. <laughs> it's one of my favorites. When I first uh, listened to the album, uh, this is like the one that first jumped out at me, actually. And uh, I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's just got a good, neat little vibe to it. And uh, the the two guitar solos on it are great, too, especially at the end, where he's just like strangling pinch harmonics out of his guitar. It just it sounds great. And again, I love the weird lyrics about monkeys covered in honey. Yeah. There are a lot of animal lyrics on this album. And it's just really evocative. And it's just, it, it puts an image in your head. It's I don't know what to make of neat. it. It's just some, something to sort of note. <laughs> oh, I just, it's one of those things that makes me wonder, like, how people come up with lyrics. Because I'm, like, not a very talented, like, you know, person at coming up with imagery or whatever. But I kind of wonder, like, you know, what was exactly the, what were they going for exactly here? Why they settle well, on I this? Can, <laughs> I can tell you, I usually use misheard lyrics from other songs <laughs> when I'm writing my own lyrics. <laughs> just just given, the, given the Meat Puppets history, I'm going to guess it's acid. Yeah, that yeah, would be my probably. Guess. But I'm not like a like I'm pretty bad about not really focusing on lyrics a whole lot. So when lyrics like this come through and stick with me, I think that's you know, like monkeys something. that have spilled honey all over the place. Yes, <laughs> but like the line about like the spilling honey on the monkeys, which is like kind of done in like that weird kind of every syllable's drawn out way that this song's lyrics kind of go by. It's just. Yeah. It's real weird, but I like it. Yeah, it's it's definitely off it's off kilter. And like I said, I'm not by saying that it's not my favorite among the songs on this album is no insult to it. I, I love this song 
but it's it feels a little a little more slight to me than some of the others but it gets a 10 out of 10 on the sticky monkey scale exactly well yes (laughs) 10 sticky monkeys out of 10 we're not topping that so uh let's move on to track six here that's how it goes Dwight Yoakam. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I was thinking. Actually, it hadn't really occurred to me until this time through. But it sound this is sort of what you would expect out of a an album produced by Dwight Yoakam's producer slash bandmate. Yeah, it's basically just country. It is, but it's it's really well done country that I think has a lot of a weird, unexpected amount of respect for the history of the genre, uh, like. Yesterday, my wife and I went to breakfast at a local restaurant whose PA system was turned to Sirius XM's Modern Country Channel. My condolences. Yeah, it's, we wound up leaving before we were really ready to because that music just infuriated us so much. I don't know the names of the artists that we heard, but it was all just this pandering bullshit. It was like, well, I ain't got no fancy-ass college degree. Gorsh, I just got simple tastes like some dunce like you, Seppin, I'm a millionaire. Well, the Gorsh makes me think that Goofy is singing it. I think that's pretty much how they picture their audience. <laughs> it's It was just it's so condescending. And even though, like, sarcasm has always been one of the Meat Puppets' chief weapons, and this song contains as much sort of bemused fatalism as any song in their catalog it still resonates with enough authentic humility that i think it's far closer in spirit to its classic country forebears than anything that like jake owen has ever even heard i really like this one well i appreciate this one because kurt is speaking in plain language for once whereas the rest of the album is filled with cartoony metaphors and sticky monkeys and just (laughs) lyrics that are completely uninterpretable um, I, I don't know whether these are self-confessional lyrics. Uh, uh, Kurt's internet bios are kind of short on personal details, and that's fine. I, I don't know if you know any more, Will. No, I um, I can't say whether this is really more of a, a personal confessional song, like you say, or if it's just <laughs> more more acid-based <laughs> <laughs> syllables that have sort of been pulled together in a out of a fishing net. Well, I, I don't know. I think that there's like some nice plain spoken language here, like watching the mess that we made as it grows. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and the waltz time is a nice change of pace, kind of atypical for them. Like, are there any waltzes on the old uh, Meat Puppets albums? I can't think of any, but I don't, I don't know them as well as you do. I can't Not think of any offhand. The top of my head. No. Yeah, I don't really know what to make of this one, to be honest. It's, it's, it's pleasant, but I can't quite tell if it's how much of it's pastiche and how much of it's like an actual sincere attempt at a country ballad 
which, um, you know, it's just very tasteful, but it's not something I really, it, it's not a highlight for me. It's nothing I really kind of come back to. <laughs> yeah, that, that's kind of where I am on it. It's pleasant enough. I like it. I never skip it. I've said that a bunch of times. Like, you know, there's nothing yeah. on this record I skip. Like, but it's it's a classic kind of country pastiche, but... If I want to listen to, like, kind of a modern snarky take on, like, country or whatever, I might go to, like, you know, Ween's 12 Classic Country Greats or whatever. 12 Golden yeah. Country Greats. Fluffy furry buddy Chewed his leg on the porch Or if I want something that's, like, actually, like, classic country, I'll just put on an actual classic country album. This is, sure. I like it. It works in the concept of the album as like, you know, kind of a, you know, breather, but it's, it's not going to be one of my favorites just because it's kind of, it's, it's never what I'm seeking out. Actually, it sounds closer. I, I haven't, um, I, I wasn't even aware of this album until a few years ago, but in about, I think 2005, while the Meat Puppets were on hiatus, Kurt reunited with, uh, Pete Anderson for a solo album called Snow. And it's, uh, it's a lot closer to this song than I think any other any other song on this album for sure. It's it's all it's mostly acoustic based rock and it's it is it's very pleasant, it's very nice. Nothing really stands out in the the context of Kurt's career. But yeah, so I I can definitely see what see what you're saying about it. All right, on that, let's uh move on to a track about everybody's favorite appliance uh, supplier, Whirlpool. Mine's KitchenAid. Some Ebo? Yeah. I think it is. Yeah, yeah, I think it's an Ebo. Is that feedback? It's this little device. Pete Buck uses it a lot on, um, well, like Ebo the letter. <laughs> yeah, I figured that he did it to a letter at some point. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's, you hold it over the strings, and it's got this sort of magnetic resonance that keeps the, the string vibrating. But you can still move your hand up and down the neck of the guitar and get it to do whatever tone you want. There was a swirling mass of water to live in a quiet pond. It asked permission from its master to visit the lands beyond. And its master allowed it to fly. And so the wind swept the whirlpool across the sky. Whirlpool's mother wore a jacket. For this one, let's just, I'm going to kick it on over to Rich first, because I know you've got a lot to say about this one. I love this song. <laughs> uh, for, first off, this song has been stuck in my head continuously for months. Well, I wake up with it in my head, and that's not a problem. Um, but <laughs> uh, there's just so much going on here, both like musically and lyrically. I'm, I'm going to start with the lyrics, which actually kind of makes sense. Not all of them, but... Um, anyway, they, they roll off the tongue just beautifully. I'm, I'm just going to quote them. There was a swirling mass of water that lived in a quiet pond. It asked permission from its master to visit the lands beyond, and its master allowed it to fly. So the wind swept the whirlpool across the sky. Like, people say that cellar door, that, that cellar door <laughs> crap is, like, beautiful. This is beautiful to me. Like, just, just a wonderful use of the English language right here. Um, and then there's a verse about a jacket made of dental floss sold by a monkey to an albatross. Another monkey... 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway, yeah. Not sure what's going on there, but anyway. Uh, so my read on this is that the whirlpool seems to be a metaphor for the band, especially the Kirkwood brothers, as they transition to the big leagues on London Records. Like, so London, their master, saw them in their quiet pond and allowed them to fly, and now they're soaring in the sky but they're still the same confused, improbable whirlpool, now completely out of its proper context. It's imposter syndrome. <laughs> that's, that's interesting. I think the, the monkey that steals the jacket made of dental floss is probably Greg Ginn. Mm-hmm. Maybe, hmm. maybe they had a specific idea. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> There's also some neat stuff going on with the form of this song, too. Like, the really fast playing at the beginning sounds to me like a waterfall or stream that then hits a pond when the song slows down. And then the harmonies come in when the whirlpool soars into the sky. Like, the song really takes you on a journey. But wait, there's more. <laughs> so, so while listening to the song eight million times, I realized that it kept. I realized that I kept getting the flame and groovies, uh, shake some action stuck in my head. Possibly the greatest power pop song, um, and I got a clip of it right here. It's a good one. To me, the secret to the greatness of Shakes in Action is its restraint, which is something that eludes a lot of power pop bands. Um, and mm -hmm. I'm specifically thinking of the way that the song maintains like this amazing nervous tension uh, by switching between major and minor chords, which is something that Whirlpool does too. Like it oscillates like a whirlpool. <laughs> it's all of the meat puppets ambivalence and anxiety about this record deal. And it's encoded into the song at every level. And I might've just gone like, you know, way too deep with that. But uh, this song just like set my brain on fire. I love it. I'd never heard it before. Uh, I'd never heard this version before, but well, you'll probably, you're probably going to get to the other version we're going to talk about. Indeed I am. This is the song that got me flopping around aboard the deck of the meat puppets main sail or whatever the correct nautical term would be. The SS Meat Puppets. The SS Meat Puppets. <laughs> they Might Be Giants, as I think I mentioned at the top of the uh, episode, released a saxophone-based cover of this song on their EP, Why Does the Sunshine? And uh, I believe, Rich, we have a clip of that, too? Yeah, we do. All right. You think I'm not going to include the TMBG clip? <laughs> there was a swirling mass of water that lived in a quiet pond. It asked permission from its master to visit the lands beyond. And its master If that annoyed you, too bad. Because <laughs> we've got more where that came from. I am certain. Um, that was my introduction to, to the Meat Puppets, at least in, well, in terms of songwriting, for sure. And I, I loved that performance on Why Does the Sun Shine? Uh, so this was the, the first Meat Puppets album I bought. And then once I bought it, this is the song I immediately fast forwarded to. And it turns out that as much as I love They Might Be Giants version, this is the far superior version. Because like Rich said, there's just a ton going on and it just 
it's just got a vibe that makes me smile that is ineffable in a, in a way. That that TMBG version, it feels like the Johns heard the Meat Puppet song and said, like, hmm, this is a whimsical, lightly philosophical song about an inanimate object. They seem to have written one of our songs by accident. We better fix that. Yeah, although they only, they covered, uh, in their cover, they do the first verse twice instead of just doing both verses. And I, this is a bit of a digression because I know this isn't a They Might Be Giants episode, but we can make any episode a They Might Be Giants episode. I feel like it may have actually been a little too quirky for even they might be giants. It's high on the quirk factor. That's my guess. The the dental floss monkey verse. The first time I ever heard this song was actually, again, it was the They Might Be Giants version because I, I think I actually had Meat Puppets 2 by the time I heard the They Might Be Giants version. But like, I heard the They Might Be Giants version of this and it made really no impression on me. I thought it was, you know, a fillery They Might Be Giants track, and I just never really thought much of it until I heard, like, this version, and then I went, oh, this song's amazing. <laughs> because, like, just that super fast, like, guitar with, like, you know, the kind of lonesome-sounding, like, you know, feedback from the Ebo, like, you know, just really kind of capturing that kind of lonely desert sound, just... I love this one. I think, like, I, the They Might Be Giants version is okay, but this version is clearly, you know, definitive. This is a super great song. So what do you think about They Might Be Giants, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> well, this is my first time hearing that, so that version. Um, yeah, I don't have a whole lot to add, actually. Yes, that's a great song. Uh, maybe the best on the album, possibly. It's up there. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, it's great. That's fair enough. <laughs> All right, on that, let's uh, let's get a little pop skull going. We haven't talked a lot on this this episode about the rhythm section of the Meat Puppets, uh, and I think that this song it it's another one that it may not be one of the the highlights of this terrific album, but I think it's probably the the best illustration of just how tight Chris on the bass and Derek on the drums are. Uh, Chris in particular is really impressive on this song. That bass line is so weird. Oh yeah. It's very weird. And it's very I think it I think it would be very difficult to to play. I say with absolutely no expertise. But it's yeah, it's just it's very thumpy and odd and it's yeah, just more dark whimsy done well on on this album, which is pretty much a meat puppet's trademark. Yeah, this is one where the production I think kinda holds the song back a bit. It's a little too kind of clinical sounding the the bass and the drums are a little it definitely has a kind of late 80s early 90s sheen to it a bit that kind of was sure a little more grit to it to kind of 
you know, give it a little more. It's a little thin uh, in the mix. Yeah. Yeah. And even the, the guitar is a little thin, too. Uh, I, I, mean, I like the song, and especially when it open, opens up in the uh, the chorus, when it kind of the, the, goes from the frantic verses into that like wide open chorus. It's a really kind of nice little kind of release. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but I, I like the song for the most part, though. Just the production. Yeah. In the, in the genre, fast songs from the early 90s, whose title is eight letters beginning in pop S, it's no pop scene by Blur, but it's a fast song. And I like fast songs. <laughs> um, I like fast songs a lot. Um, it probably stands out the least of any song on the album for me. And it seems kind of designed to be a great live song. Like, I bet, I bet this was a really great live song. Um, once again, I'm not really sure what's going on with the clowns here, but Meat Puppets lyrics. Yeah. <laughs> I think an interesting sign, like, well, not necessarily an interesting sign, but, you know, just a sign of a really interesting album is, like, when people have, like, very different opinions of, like, what, you know, stands out as highlights. Because, like, some of the stuff earlier that I've kind of poo-pooed has been, like, you know, y'all's favorite tracks on the album. It's like, and this is, like, oh yeah, absolutely one of my favorite songs on this album. I love this one. Like, I love, like, the way the fast guitar comes in. Like, I think, like, you know, the kind of, like, very clinical production, I think that, like, kind of gives it, like, a weird open sound that's, like, I've never really heard replicated elsewhere. And I think it gives it a real unique sound, like, which I can't get anywhere else. This one sounds very distinctly like the Meat Puppets doing their kind of weird thing and, like... When I first listened to this album, this is one of the tracks that like really stood out to me as a highlight and made me like take notice like, oh, this there's something going on here. Yeah, it it I can I can hear what you mean. It it is very distinctly Meat Puppets. Now that you mention it, it sounds almost like a like with with another I don't know, 6 or 7 years of of a career under their belts. It sounds almost like the opener to Meat Puppets 2, Split Myself in 2. Yeah. That was the name of the but just more, a little more mature, a little more hooky, and, and a little more like they know what they're doing. Yeah, yeah. The musicianship is definitely up. Way from yeah, Meat Puppets too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> just a smidge. But like, it's a sign. Like, we all like basically every song on this record. But like, the wide variety of opinions of like what the highlights are just suggests that whatever the Meat Puppets are doing on this album, on every track, they're doing something that really clicks with somebody. Like, well, yeah. it's just so varied, yeah. too, that it's it's a wide display of what they can do right. on mm-hmm. one album. So they're clearly, like, connecting with, like, a lot of different sounds, with a lot of different people, like, really effectively. Yeah, yeah just not effectively enough for 1991 radio listeners, apparently. Yeah, yeah, well. You know, it is odd. I was just thinking with the, the Nevermind discussion, like, this is before the big Nirvana boom, and they were already signed to a major label, which seems kind of surprising to me yeah to, according to Kurt, they weren't like that melvin's wave of <laughs> jumping on the bandwagon kind of thing right yeah they just they'd been keeping their head down and just sort of touring and recording consistently for the entire 80s and according to kurt the the majors had been sort of sniffing around for a few years by this point hmm. but just again the london records was the first one that sort of felt like they would have any idea what to do with the meat puppets well, yeah, there were ZZ Top's label, so hey, that's apparently that's why the Meat Puppets wanted to sign with them. Oh, really? Really? Because they're big ZZ Top fans. Yeah. Wow. They were also the Moody Blues label, uh, and that one was for Amanda. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was for Amanda. All right. Well, let's keep things moving here with uh, track nine. No longer gone. Mm-hmm. 
probably took the longest of any song on the album to grow on me, but I think it's become my favorite. The whole thing has a very appealing contemplative quality to me that uh, I know that Rich has remarked upon in a couple other songs on the album, like uh, Another Moon and Whirlpool. And I I think it really, it it sort of coalesces on this song probably more successfully than any other. And also the, the springy, fuzzy tone on the guitar and the chorus is one of those perfect little touches that seems intended solely to reward music dorks like us for paying attention. Is that a guitar? I, I couldn't tell what it was. I, I think I might be wrong. I don't know. I think it's a guitar. Sounds like a guitar to me. Okay. But it's it's run through, yeah, whatever affects Peter it's Anderson. It's got a weird plasticky kind of yeah. sound to it. It's, it's very, it sounds like a, a something that's being played in a bounce house or something. <laughs> I really love it. And that that's just sort of the, yeah, the, the frosting atop a very tasty cake. See, this is this is interesting because you say it took you a long time to like get around to it, but like it eventually became like your favorite song on the record. The first time I listened to this album, this was instantly my favorite song on the album. I love this one, like, and it really jumped out at me. Like, just I love that little like you know the arpeggiated guitar and the verses like. I don't know if beautiful is like the right word for it because it's kind of too quirky for like traditional quote unquote beauty, but it's totally distinctive and, you know, just a great sound. And like, you know, Kurt's like kind of somewhat disaffected vocals, like really merge with it like really well. And it just creates a totally cool, unique atmosphere. Like, and then it like, you know, jumps into the chorus with like, you know, it's kind of dun 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 thing, which is, you know, a, a big shift, but like rhythmically, it's like real catchy. It's um, very unusual, but like these parts like glue together and like, is there like a harpsichord in this song or is it just something that's kind of trying to sound like a harpsichord? Yeah, I can't tell what that is. At what point? I th- oh, yeah. I know what you're talking like about. Like the solo bit. Yeah. Like, it sounds I, like it a might be like a sped up guitar. It's like almost like a, like a mandolin kind of sound too. always kind of struck me as like weirdly nonsensical but like i think rich has some opinions about the lyrics which well will uh, was saying this as well it's a i mean yeah there are some weird metaphors in it like the um uh, like the plane with ice on its wings which i think is more like you know they're they're flying high but things aren't going so well um it, it seems to me like the puppets proclaiming their comeback while voicing their anxieties about the future it's a more of that good old ambivalence so to me that makes this song they're back in black only a lot wimpier. Um. <laughs> yeah, I think this song is gorgeous. Uh, it, it was one that jumped out at me right away. Uh, I really liked yeah, the, the the pretty verses. 
right down to the weird sprongy chorus. It just, to me, they, they mesh together really well. All right. Well, I guess it's the part of any album where everybody gets excited. Let's uh, move on to the title track, Forbidden Places. This one falls into the category right alongside Nail It Down of Meat Puppet songs that are mature to an almost unrecognizable degree. There's a tiniest bit of idiosyncrasy to it because of the way Kurt's vocals are doubled and then pitched up an octave in the back of the mix, uh, sort of like the Chipmunks or Ween style. And when the sun it turns to I never noticed that. Now I'll never unhear yeah, it. Oh, I it know. Makes the chorus set. It makes the chorus sound so eerie. They're always messing with you just a little bit. Yeah, they, they are. Reminds me of the classic Chipmunks Go Punk LP, which I'm not making up. Oh, what? <laughs> no, I've heard it. It's good. <laughs> okay. We, oh, what? That's a thing. The Chipmunks Go Punk. It's real. They have a very liberal definition of punk, by yeah. the way. <laughs> <laughs> Mostly Chipmunks go new wave. Yeah. Or Chipmunk Punk is the name of it. This has gone way yeah. off topic. I, well, yeah, no, I just want to end this episode. Just, just call it a day because I have to go look up the Chipmunks album. Um, but yeah, apart, apart from that one little sort of pr- production oddity, it's this is just another solid, untouchable chunk of rock. I, I like it a lot. Um but don't have much else to say about it. Yeah, just what Will said. It seems like another one that seemed designed to be a ringer for the radio, but they never released it as a single. Like, I don't know, it reminds me of, like, Life is a Highway or something. Now, producer Mike, don't put a clip of Life is a Highway here. So was there a single in this album? Did I miss that? It was Sam. Sam. Sam, yeah. Sam was the single. Okay, okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I can see this being a, a good, like, second single for sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's okay. Like... I, I generally like kind of like, you know, the meat puppets doing like their kind of fast guitar arpeggiated weirdo thing like you'll hear on like, you know, No Longer Gone or Whirlpool. Like that's the meat puppets I like, re- like barring that, like when they get like punkier on like, you know, Pop Skull or something. This is them at their most normal and normal meat puppets is my least favorite meat puppets. It's I still like this song because, I mean, they're good songwriters and their craft is, you know, on point. So if it sounds like I'm slamming this song, I'm really not. I do like it. But it's not the style of Meat Puppets that is most to my particular taste. To me, what this album does well, though, is because the albums before are kind of messy and all over the place. And this album kind of takes all those different weird styles and actually pairs them with good songs. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and produces them well. Yep, so I it's, agree. It's, you know, it, it's kind of... 
I think the, the the real strength of this album is kind of that weird mixture. Yeah, I've listened to Huevos, Mirage, Monsters a bunch in preparation for this episode. I cannot remember a single I'm song. I'm sorry. From them. Yeah, yeah, yeah. listen to Mirage and Huevos both today. Couldn't tell you a single thing about. Like, <laughs> I know. Yeah. I heard like Mirage was supposed to be like some kind of like psychedelic-y thing, and I'm like, oh, I like that kind of stuff. But I've listened to Mirage like ten times, and outside of the title track, which I remember mostly because it's repetitive, like. I don't remember anything. Yeah, it's it's listenable, but the songs here are just so much sturdier. Yeah, there's more substance to them, for sure. Oh, yeah, but um, on their SST albums, they, they traversed a whole lot of ground. Um, not always successfully or memorably, <laughs> as you guys have noted. But it feels like Forbidden Places not only manages to, to up their game in terms of memorability, but it really sort of scoops up everything they'd done to this point and and puts it on a a buffet table <laughs> right like this album like so the previous the previous three uh meat puppets albums just to me they just screamed like for a need for someone to come in and focus them because i think at heart the meat puppets are like kind of a pop band they're quirky and they have a unique sound but at heart they're kind of doing just you know kind of guitar based pop music and I think they really benefited from, you know, the direction that came with a major label here, because it really did like, I think a combination of having people on the major label come in and probably give them some direction combined with them realizing we're on a major label now, let's really focus up, just resulted in a set of very strong songs, which they hadn't had for a while. Yeah, I totally agree. All right. And with that, like, you know, we've gotten through the main course of this album. So let's have a little bit of dessert with the last track on here. Six Gallon Pie. That's a lot of dessert. unexpected maturity and professionalism that the Meat Puppets displayed in the previous 10 songs, they've decided to end their major label debut on the stupidest note possible, and it is glorious. It's, it's got a duck call. It's got one of those giant triangles that guys named Cookie would ring to announce supper time in old Western movies. And at the very end, it's got this faux Native American chanting that is even dumber than anything the Ramones would have attempted. It is just... The whole thing is bliss. 
it just makes me smile every time I listen to this stupid thing. <laughs> and that's what's perfect about the Meat Puppets. Like on some of the earlier Meat Puppets albums, they would throw in like a few instrumentals. Like I think there's I, I think there's like three instrumentals on like Meat Puppets 2. Like things like I'm a Mindless Idiot is the title of one of them. But those always kind of sound like kind of atmospheric is kind of what they feel like they're going for. But this is just like them just going screw it, just throwing like a weirdo like country hoedown instrumental here. But it's so much fun because like this band is like very underrated in terms of their instrumental skills. They can, they can really play, but this still sounds like the Meat Puppets. It's still like their distinct identity still comes through even when they're being like playing a silly instrumental like this. And I think, you know, after like kind of the more serious, like, you know, quote unquote grunginess of like the title track, like this kind of comes in and blows it away and like, you know, ends the album on a real fun note. I like that they did it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree with, I agree with you Phil, about the musicianship. Like this seems like a toss off, but the, the playing is just on point here. Um, and it's tons of fun. Um, I also realized that it's the intersection of the Venn diagram between meat puppets and uh, camper van Beethoven only without the fiddle. So now I know why <laughs> this is Will's favorite album by them. Exactly. Yeah. That's, that's the sweet spot. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic song. Oh yeah. I love this one. Yeah. You couldn't pull this novelty off if you didn't have those chops. Like mm-hmm. Kurt is just a ridiculously good guitar player. Right. Like just hearing the way he can like just pick so fast. And even when it's like seemingly a throwaway, it still is worth listening to. Yeah. It doesn't feel like a joke. It like, I mean, it feels yeah. silly, but it doesn't feel like, you know, I've heard many albums where people kind of do like a random country hoedown or something. And it always sounds like a dumb joke. Like they don't really know what they're doing and they're just doing it. Ha ha ha. Look at us doing a kind of a country hoedown thing. But like the meat puppets don't sound like that here. They sound like they appreciate this stuff and they just are getting down with it. And this is a rare example of a uh, hoedown that seems to drift into yeses, yours is no disgrace in the middle for a moment or two. That is identical. Yeah, and I let that run a couple extra bars just to annoy Will. <laughs> I like yes. I like them fine. But hey, yes, we're no strangers to a hoedown. Because, I mean, on the album, you know, yours is no disgrace is immediately followed by the clap. So Not to mention hoedown by ELP. There are a lot of hoedowns yeah. in prog rock. Let's talk about prog rock hoedowns for the next 17 hours. Like, strap yourself in, listeners. And I'll be back with you guys in April. <laughs> <laughs> Well, before that, though, uh, before we torture all of our listeners with, you know, an impenetrable discussion of, like, prog rock country tributes, that sounds like a good time to wrap things up. So uh, what are your final thoughts on this one, Will? I don't know what else I can say, really, that we haven't already covered. Except This is, yeah, if, if, you're, if you've heard of the Meat Puppets, um, I would strongly encourage you to go out of your way to to find this album out of print or not uh i think i think it's not just one of well not just their most solid album but i think it's one of the most solid 
quote, alternative albums of the 90s. I really cannot say enough about how much I love this album. Yeah, it's it's certainly one of the most solid, like, Meat Puppets albums. It's probably, like, Two and Up on the Sun are kind of considered the classics. But if I was going to introduce, like, if a person was coming in completely cold and said, like, I'm interested in the Meat Puppets, what should I listen to? This is the one I would probably recommend. Which, again, mm-hmm. it's out of print, but, you know, we're living in the future and YouTube is a thing. So, you know, you can, <laughs> I'm sure you can hear it. Yeah, it feels silly that I slept on this album for so long that I just kind of wrote off everything after Up on the Sun. Uh, yeah, this, I'm really glad that Will kind of wrote me into this episode because, yeah, <laughs> this is really an album I just would not have thought to look for otherwise. And it's it's really, really good. I enjoy this album, but I wish it was a hit. It makes me sad. Like, uh, the the Meat Puppets always feel kind of out of sync to me with the musical trends of the day. Like, I'm thinking of the whole Nirvana thing. Like, by the time Nirvana introduced them to a national audience, they were elders, dinosaurs, even though they'd only been together for, like, 14 years and had never had yeah. a hit. Like, so with that in mind, I'm glad you unearthed this album that uh, by them that isn't really just talked about ever. Uh, and I encourage listeners to purchase their albums that are not out of print. Right. It's also a shame, like, by the time Nirvana really, like, broke them to a wide audience, their, as they would say on VH1's Behind the Music, personal demons were beginning to kind of catch up with them. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the band was, like, not long for this world, which is unfortunate. Yeah, we should probably get into a little bit of that, huh? Like, uh, like Chris, Chris Kirkwood uh, had some extreme problems with heroin. Yeah, after um, what would become... Mentioned in innumerable articles as an ironically titled album after the album Too High to Die, which was the follow-up to this album, Chris got really heavy into heroin, and it broke up the band, essentially, because they, um, London Records dropped them because Kurt refused to kick Chris out of the band, even though he'd become increasingly unstable and unreliable. Um, And then he wound up in this like sort of Sid and Nancy type situation that he barely survived and his wife didn't. And he wound up in jail for a lengthy stint. And Kurt almost did as well because Chris gave the cops Kurt's name when he got arrested. It was just, it was a very, very sad situation, but thankfully um, Kurt or Chris rather is now uh, clean. Uh, The band reunited in 2000 or Kurt and Chris got back together for the meat puppets in 2007 uh, Derek didn't rejoin the band until this year, but he's back in. So it's yeah, I've, I've heard some of their albums since they reunited. Like, and they're you know they're not classics, but they're good. If you like the Meat Puppets, I mean, they're you know they're worth hearing. If you like the band, well, we should transition into recommendations. Well, yeah, going into that direction, I'd say that um, their post their first post reunion album, Rise to Your Knees, it's it's no classic. It's probably like five songs too long. But it, there's a lot of very, very good material on it. Um, again, it's the the best thing I can recommend for people who like this album is to sort of like if you have the soul of a punk who doesn't care about whether things sound proper, 
by all means, please go back to their early years and discover Meat Puppets 2 and Up on the Sun. Meat Puppets 2, in particular, is every bit as good as its reputation. It sounds like an album that was made by a hardcore band who was kidnapped, blindfolded, and then dumped in the desert with a bunch of acoustic instruments and veins full of Ambien. It's terrific. Sun, they put out an EP called Out My Way, which I think is also very, very strong. And it is in print with like a bunch of bonus tracks that, you know, jack it up to full length at this point. But I'd recommend that one, too. like to hide it eye uh fine i mean the single backwater is like it sounds kind of simple for them uh it's my like at the risk of sounding like a hipster like you know i'm too cool for it i think backwater is the worst song on the record but uh, there's 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 a lot of a uh, there's a lot of decent stuff in this vein uh, in the vein of forbidden places on there as well yeah, it's a good record it's worth having and you can find it for a dollar in any dollar bin in th- throughout the country yeah yeah so it's it's definitely worth your uh you're George Washington, as the, the kids refer to dollar bills. I would recommend looking for their, their post Too High to Die album, No Joke, though, which I imagine you can get just as cheaply, but it's far stronger with a lot of aggressively antisocial songwriting and some really bracingly ugly production from butthole surfer Paul Leary. The whole thing just, it feels like sticking your hand in some previously undiscovered non-Newtonian fluid. It's just so odd it's wonderful it's very strong and like the label was basically done with them by the time it came out so they didn't promote it and it got like negative reviews when it came out which i think was just a side effect of it not being promoted but it's real good i encourage you to ignore like what a lot of professional critics at the time said and like you know go to your local you know dollar cd bin and get a copy of no joke because it's really good in some forgettable rhyme we crawled across the borderline We kissed the enemy till I thought we'd travel out of time You couldn't have heard me speak, there was so it did seem I say A fog so heavy that I could not tell it was night or day And over So that's it for this episode of uh, Discord and Rhyme. 
Uh, make sure to tune in next time where our album will be not an album at all, but rather the Discord and Rhyme Holiday Special, where we talk about some of our favorite holiday music. Yeah, we got an episode coming out right on Christmas, so we're going to go the holiday route for you guys. So on that note, uh, that brings us to the end of this episode. Remember, if you are interested in Forbidden Places, you can probably find it used or on YouTube because Will is some kind of hipster and chose an album that is out of print, so you can't even buy it for a reasonable price. Check out discordpod.com for show notes and a preview of upcoming albums, including Amazon affiliate links, where you can buy the albums and support our podcast in the process. You can follow Discord and Rhyme on Twitter at discordpod for news and updates. You can follow me at PA Maddox. You can follow Rich at Zone Trope. You can follow Dan at Dan S. Watkins. But you can't follow Will because he's not on Twitter. He was, but then his master allowed him to fly, and the wind swept him across the sky. Special thanks, as always, to our own Mike DeFabio, the other leading brand for production duties. Check out Will's music at disclaimer.bandcamp.com. See you next album, and be ever wonderful. Okay, I expect you all to sing along with this. <laughs> Maybe they had a ridiculous commitment to make up about something they hadn't experienced. Possibly Sam had a different opinion that nobody ever considered an important condemn. If Norman and Betty were listening, somebody would have become phenomenal. Yeah, I can do the whole thing. So there.